We're going to look now at the story of a man whose abbreviated life took him from Dublin's Botanic Gardens to the killing fields of Gallipoli. It's a story told in a forthcoming book from Liffey Press, a biography of a man named Charles Frederick Ball. He was assistant keeper at the Botanic Gardens and he carried his keen professional interest in horticulture to that World War I battlefield. As artillery boomed in the background, his attention was drawn to the flowers and the other plant life that he found there. The author of the book is Brian Willen, who joins me now. Brian, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Okay. Now, the book began, as I suppose many World War I projects have, with a small metal box of letters. Tell me about the letters of Fred to Alice. The letters, as you say, were in a, a, a very small uh, metal box and I, I first uh, came across them about three years ago after my mother died. And uh, they had been written from Fred Ball, as he was always known to Alice and to his family, to Alice, uh, who was my grandmother, but my grandmother as a result of her second marriage, not her first marriage. So so that was the connection. And uh, I, I knew nothing whatever about Fred Ball up until that point. My, my mother had mentioned um, his name once or twice and my, my aunt Eileen as well. But uh, it, it, it meant absolutely nothing to me. And, uh, and to be honest, uh, I didn't have a, a particular interest in pursuing it until, uh, until this box of letters materialised. Mm. And uh, it, it was absolutely fascinating reading through it. Well, it obviously personalised the subject. Um, tell us a little bit about his background. The background, say, before he comes to Ireland, because he's not, he wasn't actually, he wasn't Irish, he wasn't born in Ireland. Uh, he, he wasn't Irish, he was English. Um, he was born in uh, Loughborough in Leicestershire. He, he didn't come from a, a kind of horticultural family, as it were. There wasn't that sort of family tradition. Uh, his father was a chemist, had a business in the high street in, uh, in Loughborough. And uh, what happened was that he actually died um, at a pretty early age, 49, I think he was, which left the family in a, a pretty difficult situation. Um, and I think it meant that so far as uh, his career was concerned, when, when Fred had a, a developed a fascination in botany, he started right from the beginning. He, at the age of 16, he went off about 15 miles away and took out an apprenticeship with a, uh, a nursery business. And that was the first of those. He, he then moved to a, another job just outside London, which he did for another year. And at that point, he obviously wanted to get on. He, he was clearly absolutely fascinated by the world of plants. And as it happened, that job was pretty close to the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. And that, this was obviously the place that you needed to go to if you wanted to get on in the profession of horticulture. Uh, so that's what he did. He, he applied and he, he got in, um, had his training there. And it was at the end of his second spell there that he came to Ireland because what happened was that he he left in um, 1903, set up a, a nursery business with his brother. Uh, it didn't succeed. Uh, he needed another job, went back to Kew, but was really rather overqualified for the job that they gave him. And essentially he was waiting, I think, for an opportunity to arrive. And it, it did arrive so he came to Dublin in 1906 to be a, an assistant keeper. And the keeper of the Botanic Gardens at the time was another Fred, or perhaps it's a bit in for dig, Frederick, <laughs> Fred, Frederick Moore, who I think he became Sir Frederick Moore at some point as he well. Did. So tell me about Sir Frederick Moore. He had been there um, for a long time. In fact, uh, I think since um, 1879. His father before him had been the, the previous keeper of the Botanic Gardens. 
So it was a, a bit like Q, actually. There was a kind of dynasty. He had a, a very good reputation. He'd built up the gardens, you know, pretty successfully. He was regarded very much as a, a horticulturalist rather than a, a botanist or a scientist. But he was pretty highly regarded. I think what had happened was that the broader picture, I think, at this time was that um, the gardens had come under the Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction with Sir Horace Plunkett and all of the initiatives that he was responsible for. And I think the reason why Fred got the job as assistant keeper, why Frederick Moore was able to make the case to the department that he needed an assistant because there hadn't been one there before, was that he had become increasingly involved in advising the government on other matters, you know, to do with fruit farming, for example, and technical uh, education. And I think as a result of that, he was able to make the case that uh, he needed uh, an assistant. And I think he, it was obvious from the letters, some of the correspondence in the archives that Glasnevin has, has survived for this period, I think it's obvious that as soon as Fred arrived, Frederick Moore, you know, saw that this was an extremely good person and he really wanted to, to hold on to him. So he had to make the case to create the new job. But he, he did, in the end, manage to do that, even though at the time the department had a preference for somebody who was Irish-born because it was that, that, mm. kind of that period where that was politically, you know, the desirable thing. But um, Frederick Moore was able to persuade the department that Fred really had the qualities that, uh, that were needed and that they simply didn't exist amongst uh, anybody else uh, in Ireland. Let's go back to the letters, the, the letters to your, to your grandmother, Alice Lane. They were, um, essentially, they were love letters, really, weren't they? They were, largely. Um, they're certainly full of uh, endearing sentiments. He was clearly smitten by Alice. She was a lot younger than he was. And I think the most interesting ones were, were when, you know, she was away in Brussels. She went to a finishing school there. And Fred at the time was in, in Dublin. But uh, because they were in kind of slightly different worlds, the, the letters that, that Fred wrote were actually pretty informative as well because she wasn't in Dublin at the time. He was telling her, you know, what was going on. And they, I mean, their relationship had its ups and downs. I, I well, think he, he first proposed to her when she was 18. Uh, 19, 19, I think she right, was. Okay. Yeah. And I think she wasn't quite ready for that. I mean, unfortunately, none of her letters have survived. So you, you kind of get uh, your view of her reaction from Fred's mm. letters in response. But it's clear that, you know, she was much younger. She wasn't quite ready for that. And uh, essentially, she put him off. And uh, he said, well, he, he certainly wouldn't want to persuade her if she wasn't sure of, of her mind and said, well, let's just be friends and, you know, and leave it at that. But I think their relationship did reestablish itself. And, um, you know, they, they got together again. And when, when Alice was back in Dublin at the end of 1912, I think it's clear that they, they did become a lot closer. They saw a lot more of each other. And Fred then proposed uh, a second time early in 1913. And this time uh, the answer was yes. But she changed her mind. But she changed her mind. <laughs> she did. She, uh, she said yes. And I think they had agreed, uh, from the look of it, they had agreed a date. And they started looking around for houses in, in Glasnevin. But then uh, I think she had some second thoughts and had some doubts about it and said, look, can we put this off? And so they, they remained engaged, but uh, they, they didn't take the final step until the end of 1914. And that was after Fred had, uh, had enlisted. And I think it was when he thought that he was about to be sent off, you know, somewhere outside Ireland or, or the UK. 
And uh, at that point, she said, I think we must get married as soon as possible. Now, he enlisted uh, in the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers, which is one of the most celebrated Irish units in the Great War, known as the, the PALS, the PALS Battalion or the PALS Regiment, many of them rugby players who joined together in, in Lansdowne Road. So he, he, he was part of that. I mean, I'm not sure whether he was, whether he was involved, whether he was sporting or anything like that, but certainly he joined that particular unit. He did. Um, he wasn't at this point uh, a rugby player himself, but I think that he uh, he knew a lot of the people. Um, it was quite interesting, actually. There was one letter that has survived that he wrote from um, the Curragh shortly after you know he had enlisted, and the first letter is different from the second letter because it was clear that by the time the second letter was written, he had actually transferred into D Company. And that's where he remained. And that's where he met again, all of these other friends and colleagues, Frank Laird, you know, the, the Gunning brothers, for example. And they actually formed a, a pretty close-knit unit. And I think that's actually one of the things that does, you know, come through fairly clearly is that sort of sense of camaraderie. So he is part of the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers D Company and is sent fairly quickly. I mean, by August of 1915... Their landing at, at, at Suvla Bay. Did you get any sense of what that would have been like? Is any of this treasure trove of letters, does it come from, does it come from Gallipoli? Uh, no, it doesn't. The last letter in the metal box is from late in 1914. So um, at least until um, there were some letters that were published uh, after his death, which he had written to Sir Frederick Moore at the Botanic Gardens, those relate to the latter part of his time there. And essentially it was when they had sort of moved from the attempt to take the surrounding hills to the kind of trench warfare that he'd ended up with. So those letters or extracts from them you know, were, were published. Um, but you do actually get quite an interesting picture of the initial phases of the Suvla Bay landing from some of the other people who were there. You know, who were actually quite close friends of Fred's. Um, Frank Laird, for example, um, Cecil Gunning and his, his brother Frank Gunning, who, um, you know, were very close friends of Fred's at the time. And uh, the Gunnings particularly, this is actually a, a diary that's only come to light, you know, fairly recently within the last few years and really provides a, a very vivid account of of the landings and also the um, the assault on Akeretch uh, Tepe, which, you know, was a... A kind of famous and very bloody assault mm. where where D Company lost pretty much half of the number. They come unstuck, uh, or they came unstuck at Kirish Tepe Sergia. Um, I mean, Frank Laird. You mentioned Frank Laird. Frank Laird, a member of or a fellow member of the Seventh Royal Dublin Fusiliers, actually published a memoir in 1925. I think it was. Didn't live long, very very long after that himself, as as I recall. But I also recall reading that memoir, and there are references uh, to Fred Ball as this strange individual he's wandering around oh you know looking at instead of looking at the turks and uh, you know looking look, looking looking out for himself is basically looking at the vegetation the plant life yes and and that was also very evident in the uh, the letters that um, that fred wrote back to sir frederick moore and i think it was obvious that uh, he he was you know regardless of the surroundings you know he was passionately interested in the plants and flowers wherever it was that he went to i mean he he used to spend uh, his annual holidays going you know plant collecting in switzerland and bulgaria 
And so if he was sent out to Gallipoli, you know, whatever else was going on around him, you know, he was going to be fascinated by the flowers that he saw. But Frank, um, Frank Laird also has some other interesting things to say about Fred as well, in addition to, you know, his fascination with, with flowers. There was uh, an occasion shortly after the assault on Chocolate Hill, which was, you know, in the initial phases of the of the landings. Fred, um, it, it was clear, had been the one who volunteered to assist uh, a very badly wounded colleague called uh, Hugh Anderson, who remarkably survived, but uh, somebody had to take him down to the uh, the ambulance station and down to the beach and, and, and onto uh, one of the hospital ships. And Fred was the one who volunteered to do that. And it was also the case that subsequently when... Um, Frederick Moore, Sir Frederick Moore, wrote uh, his obituary. He he reported that quite a few people had written to him to tell him that there were a number of other instances where, you know, Fred had simply volunteered and stepped forward. I mean, for example, when he was killed, it was as a result of going to the aid of a colleague uh, who'd been injured by shell fire and that he then got it when the second shell came through. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of Dubliners of that generation, he didn't survive Gallipoli and Frank Laird in his memoir describes the death of, of Fred Ball. Tell us a little bit more about, about how he died. Um, what, what happened was that the uh, D Company had been in the trenches they were then relieved and taken out of the trenches and sent down to what was curiously described as a rest camp. Um, the rest camp was simply um, the slope of, of a hill facing the sea where they, had, I think, had dug a few holes and put some you know, canvas tents. And it, the problem was that, like most of the peninsula, it was within range of the, the Turkish artillery. And they were there for three days, D Company. They suffered quite a lot of casualties. And on the final day that they were staying in um, Lalababa, this was, a shell fire you know, was continual. Fred was injured. He wasn't killed immediately, but um, he was taken off to the nearby ambulance field station and I think died uh, a few hours later. Now, there's an interesting legacy of all of this involving some seeds from a Turkish oak tree. Tell us that story. Yes. Uh, one of the things that Fred did while he was there was he arranged to send back to Ireland seeds from uh, a number of plants via the, good in, via the good offices, incidentally, of a man called William Lacey, who happened to be the... He was the caretaker at Glasnevin, and he was in the Royal Irish Fusiliers. And I think they probably you know, had this conversation in the trenches at, at Chocolate Hill, whereby William Lacey arranged to get these sent back. Among them uh, were some acorns of Gallipoli oak, or Quercus coccifera, and uh, these were sent back to Glasnevin. Some of those acorns were then sent on to a man called George Smith, uh, who ran a very famous nursery in, in Uri, and he planted these acorns, and it seems that um, you know, they, they grew successfully. And then about 15, 16 years later, he was retiring, he was selling his business and he wanted somewhere, you know, for the acorn, the tree as it was to go to. And so he had a conversation with uh, one of his main customers, a man called Frank Gilliland, who owned uh, quite a big estate in uh, called Brook Hall, uh, just outside Derry. And uh, he gave the tree and it was then transplanted there. And I think the particular reason why Frank Gilliland um, was keen to have it and why you know, George Smith was keen for it to go there 
was that it it commemorated his association with uh, Fred Ball, but it also commemorated the death of another member of the Gilliland family, um, Lieutenant Billy Gilliland, who uh, had also died at Gallipoli. So I think it did have a, a particular symbolic significance. Unfortunately, it didn't survive and it's not there, but uh, but I have seen exactly where the spot was because Gilliland kept a detailed journal of all of the plants that he, that he got and he said exactly where he put them. So we do know where it was planted. So it would be nice at some point for a new one to be put in its place, I think. Now, your grandmother, Alice, obviously became a widow very, very young. Uh, what happened to her subsequently? She did. Um, I mean, obviously, it must have been a pretty difficult time recovering from what had happened. But she was reported to have been involved in the work of the Comforts Committee and, you know, in helping the wounded from Gallipoli and other campaigns. But she then learnt to drive and then joined the Women's Royal Air Force. And there was a, a RAF base at, um, at Talak. And so she was based there for a while. And there's a wonderful picture actually showing her with one of the trucks that she was responsible for, for driving. And what happened after that was that she then, at some point shortly after that, met my grandfather, who was a Major Robert King, and he'd been in the, the Royal Irish Rifles in the First War. They got married, but then they, they moved to England. And uh, I think this was actually less a matter of, of if he had been a British army officer actually involved, I think, in military intelligence, then he might not, might not have thought it was a very good time to be around. But I think it was actually more to do with the fact that um, his family were very opposed to his marriage to, to Alice. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why that was, but you know that was the case. And there was just also the question of employment prospects. I think there were more jobs in, in England. So so they left Ireland, and uh, although they then kind of visited quite often, they, uh, they never came and, and lived again in Ireland, although you know both had come from Dublin originally. Finally, just to return to Frederick Ball, Charles Frederick Ball, or Fred, he was never known as Charles, I know. It's, it's an interesting case study. And what you do, I think, is you bring a number of different narratives of the war together in his story, don't you? Yes, I, I think when you, you kind of get into this level of detail, I think what you realise is that um, everybody's experience is different, you know, according and depending on, you know, where you came from, what your background is. And then the, you know, the individual experiences that you actually have during the, the war and during the campaigns themselves. And so I, I felt, you know, beyond simply saying that, well, clearly, you know, this is part of the narrative, but it's a fairly individual part of the narrative. And I think Fred, in a way, was in, in a fairly unique sort of position. I, I think he very much had, you know, one foot in England and one foot in Ireland. Most of his family was still in England. He went backwards and forwards quite a lot. But he had clearly resolved to, to make his future in Ireland. You know, he intended to settle down with, with Alice he, I'm sure, would have ended up as the next director, the next keeper of the Botanic Gardens in, 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 in Dublin had he not been killed. So he was, he was an interesting character. Well, the book will be published next month by the Liffey Press. It's called Charles Frederick Ball from Dublin's Botanic Gardens to the Killing Fields of Gallipoli. The author is Brian Willen. Brian, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. 
That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Kieran Dunn and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.